Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Canizzato, here as always with the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. As always, we are sponsored by the Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built on the mission to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. And I love Black Rifle Coffee at the moment because uh, we're recording this pretty early this morning. I got myself a nice full uh, Yeti cup full of it. So enjoying that this morning. Hey, our guest today is Mark Kenyon of Meat Eater and the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm sure you all have heard of Mark. Uh, we've talked to Mark here before as well. He's listed his title, interestingly, as content creator, but man, he has so much more for Meat Eater, uh, really the face of the whitetail category uh, for Meat Eater. We're going to talk about the Working for Wildlife tour that he's leading, uh, one of his latest projects. They are going to highlight or work with us on three uh, of our forestry projects, which you're going to hear about here in the interview. And I just got to spend some time with Mark. I was out at Meat Eater out at their headquarters. who so got to spend some time with Mark and Bozeman and Steve Ranilla and uh, Ryan Callahan. Incidentally, we shot some sporting clays and I shot with Ryan. And so Cal is uh, really good at shooting sporting clays and he did it in flip-flops on top of everything else. So uh, kind of rub it in our face, faces there. So that was a good time. It was good to see those guys. Uh, but with that, Speaking of uh, being good to see people, let's say hello to a man that has a fetish for vintage chainsaws, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. <laughs> oh man, I did not, I did not expect that one, but yes. Um, I don't know when we should talk about this, but uh, I think I've turned a B team report into an A team report. So I think we need to talk be about first. it now. Yeah, let's just, let's just talk about it. All right. Well, as everyone who has uh, listened to a previous episode knows that I uh, locked up uh, my favorite chainsaw of, of 15, 16 years because I didn't add oil to the gas mix for the first time in all of those years. I made a critical mistake. But the good news is, is um, I just can't give up on that chainsaw. And it fired up the other day, ran for a little bit. And then as soon as I tried to give it uh increase the throttle it actually cut out so uh the cylinders are fire the cylinder is firing so it might have some more life in it i just have to tear it down and rebuild it and see if i can get it to work but long story short uh, i needed to have a chainsaw because i'm still doing a lot of uh firewood pepper preparation and um, some habitat work on my place up in new york and stopped in to get a few pieces and parts to actually look at the chainsaw that wasn't working and stumbled across a Husqvarna 576, which if people are Husky fans, they'll know that, you know, the 576 has not been made in a while. And so I looked at it and I, and this thing was brand spanking new, not a mark on it and picked it up, moved it around a little bit and realized that they had a 12 year old chainsaw. It was built that the, the actual metal stamp on the side of it, it was built in 2011 and it was just a holdover. No one had bought it. It's a little bit big. It's a big saw. Um, it's not as sleek and cool and sexy as the newer models now, but you know, when I see something that I know what it is and how it's going to work, I talked to the guy and asked him, you know, it was marked, they had it marked down to $899. And I asked him if he would take 700 for it. And he said, yes. And I have a brand new saw. Well, uh, you know, sleek and sexy is not 
really part of our vocabulary anymore, Mike. So I think you probably got <laughs> no. you probably got the appropriate saw at this point. But uh, no, I got I got sturdy and robust. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, just just functioning at this point <laughs> is probably a compliment uh, for us. But no, I I had to laugh when I saw. Uh, your text come in and, and then you called me because you were so excited and you're like and this thing was made in 2011 and I'm like oh man people have used and retired like three saws since then but uh, you somehow found a uh, I guess a needle in a haystack out there yeah so anyway hey we have this is an ask NDA anything podcast episode and so we got three excellent and because we got Mark's interview coming up let's power through these uh, they're okay. all good. Uh, so uh, Jason from Tennessee, he's actually sent us questions before, which we appreciate, Jason. This is a good one. Uh, he says, I have a healthy looking mature doe that I see behind myself or behind my house. Excuse me. I see her pregnant waddle in late May, uh, early June for the past three months when she gives birth. I never see her with a fawn, but when she shows back up, I see her utter very swollen. Since I don't see her fawn, I suspect the fawns aren't surviving because of that problem. Uh, by early October, her udder will go down to about normal. What causes this issue? Is it a permanent problem that will cause her to never have fawns? I've attached photos. And he did attach photos. I love when people attach photos. Well, uh, Jason, when I saw that, my initial reaction was actually the opposite, that she's probably doing a very good job of raising her fawns. As a matter of fact, so good that she's hiding them from you and everybody else. And that swollen udder is actually quite normal. But so that I would stay in my lane, I thought, you know, I have some really smart deer biologists on staff that would be more appropriate to answer this question. So I reached out to Kip uh, Adams and Matt Ross. This is Kip's response, but Matt essentially responded to Kip's response and said, yep, that's what I would have said. So uh, Kip says she's definitely nursing fawns. Uh, she's just hiding them so that uh, you can't see them. Those uh, that lose fawns dry up very quickly. And so uh, you probably wouldn't see that uh, loose udder hanging there, but uh, I don't have an exact time frame. He says, but it's within a couple weeks. When fawns are born, does produce a certain amount of milk uh, based on her her nutritional condition. It, uh, it takes the suckling of the fawns to make her continue producing milk, and she'll produce larger amounts of milks as the fawns grow up. Uh, so if she lost her fawns, it would be uh, uh, shortly after giving birth, you would not see that swollen udder. And so uh, the consensus of the staff here, Jason, is, is that she actually is raising fawns. If you saw that udder shrink up by now at this point, then maybe that would be the opposite, but we think that everything is just fine there. So anything you want to add, Mike? Um, I, I have to default to Kip and Matt both. I mean, um, Kip is a cattleman, so he has a lot of firsthand experience with um, suckling and um, milk production in regards to calves in that situation. But um, the only thing I will say in regards to the, the medical world is that uh, mastitis, which is inflammation of the milk producing glands in humans, at least, um, you'll actually, there'll be a lot of pain involved with that, uh, redness, uh, and the the children usually survive, but they're usually undernourished. So um, I would have to say like blending that in, the fact that it's still 
was swollen or still full of milk. Uh, but if it was bright red, that might be a sign of mastitis. But if it was the normal whitish color of a doe's underbelly, most likely I would agree with Kip and Matt that she was just suckling and uh, had a full udder and was coming to feed before she went to feed her fawns. Yep. And having seen the picture, I when I saw it, I thought, yeah, that's actually quite normal. Uh, what I saw there. So anyway, thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. Others may have been wondering the same thing as it is certainly uh, the time of year where you see does and fawns and all that cool stuff. So, all right, our next one. Uh, this is a good one. This was a multimedia submission round apparently because we got a video with this one. Uh, this one comes from Steve, who's from Michigan. Um, and he says he's a new hunter from a non-hunting family, which we get quite a bit of those uh, on the podcast, which we really appreciate. Uh, although at some point, as they become more experienced hunters, they'll realize that there are much better places to get good information than from the doctor and I. But, uh, <laughs> but we'll play along for now. Uh, anyway, uh, last year was my first season. Uh, he says he dove in on his own and he managed to harvest a two and a half year old doe in December. So congratulations on that, Stephen. That's great. Uh, and then uh, he says uh, in January, I got a cell cam and my son and I hung it on public land. And he says, but now I'm going to get to my point. Uh, he said he got a series of pictures that seemed odd. And so he requested the video from his camera to get a better look. It was immediate, cl immediately clear that the doe that he saw had three legs. So we had three-legged doe was browsing. I said there seems to be a bit of a nub below the front uh, the, the front left shoulder. Uh, it's funny too when when we see front shoulder. This is something I learned from Joe Hamilton, uh, uh, the founder of QDMA. So whenever someone says about shooting a deer in the front shoulder, he says, "Okay, well, where's the back shoulder?" <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get it. Uh, but anyway, on the front of the deer, there was a nub there, uh, and so he attached the video, and. Uh, he said, this was on May 25th. What are the chances the deer is still out there alive today? I thought this might be interesting enough to pass along. Um, he did fill out an injured animal report with the DNR. Didn't expect anything really to be done, but wanted to let them know it was out there. And so, uh, Stephen, this is, believe it or not, this is not terribly uncommon. I mean, I can tell you many times over my long career of hunting and, and being affiliated with the outdoors that uh, I, I, I've probably had at least five, maybe 10 different instances where I either saw or was aware of deer or had pictures shown to me of deer that had missing limbs. And it can happen for a lot of different reasons. Uh, anything from maybe it was wounded by uh, a bullet in the previous season. Now in the video, uh, folks can't see it, but I can share with them that it was a completely healed over nub. And also this doe was, uh, looked very healthy and she was just feeding along. And my guess is she's been getting along on three legs for quite a while. Uh, we've also uh, had, I had some of the staff, I shared the video with them and they said, yeah. And sh they shared stories of does with three legs that also still had fawns with them every year. And so it's not really a terribly uncommon thing. The, you also have to allow for the possibility that the doe was born with three legs. Uh, de deer are not any different than uh, humans or any other species where they're not necessarily all uh, born perfectly and they can have flaws and that could be one of them. So my guess is that deer is doing very well. She looked great in the video. Uh, she just doesn't walk real well, not going to win too many races. So Mike, have you seen uh, deer with three legs or injured legs? I have. And that's the one biggest thing that I think needs to be a good takeaway point is looking at looking at the overall health 
and body composition of the specimen that you're talking about if you're not seeing ribs or um, actually sucked in uh, gut or on dogs we call it a tuck up where you can actually see pelvic bones almost like on a, a milk cow the the animal's actually doing pretty well actually the funny thing is about this question is I just had uh, someone send me a, an internet video of a fox that was feeding in someone's backyard and it didn't have either back legs and so it had just had its front legs it would walk around on its front legs in like almost a handstand position using its tail to counterbalance and it was still looking okay it was you know hunting along you know and animals are rather sturdy and just looking at their body composition if they don't look well then they're not well but if they look okay they're a sturdy and hardy creature and they get along rather well with just like people do you know with a deficit here and there yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how they can adapt. And while you were talking, I'm like, I went back and watched the video again. And this doe is she's doing really well. I mean, oh, incidentally, too, he's sending this from Michigan. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like this is wolf country or anything like that. So a, an adult doe, even with three legs, it would be rare even then for like coyotes or whatever to try to mess too much with that deer. They're mostly after much, much smaller uh, meals. But, you know, an animal in Africa with three legs isn't going to last long tell you that so uh, Michigan is not Africa and so sometimes you see deer uh, throughout the whitetail range anyway if there aren't if there aren't big major predators uh, they can last a long time like that so anyway thank you Steve congratulations on your first deer and continued good hunting all right our next one is from Mike in Pennsylvania and incidentally Mike is the president of the West Central PA chapter of the NDA so, Mike, appreciate your service there and appreciate your question. This is a good one. It's not something I ever really thought of, but uh, he says, uh, uh, we shoot groundhogs whenever we have the opportunity, and sometimes we've seen turkey vultures and even a bald eagle feeding on the carcasses, but most of the time they're gone the next day. Uh, after listening to your latest podcast, I want to put up a camera on them, so he must have listened to the awful wildlife uh, watching project. Uh, that we had in the last episode he says in my mind a fox or a coyote will gladly take the opportunity for a quick easy meal and have a full belly instead of working for a fawn uh, or will this draw in unwanted predator predators from elsewhere should we carry them away and dispose of them any thoughts so he's thinking man if i leave those carcasses out there that's good because a predator might eat those instead of trying to get a fawn uh, but also man i'm worried i might draw in predators and so let me, I'll give a, a quick answer and then uh, we'll, we'll let the doctor weigh in. Um, so yeah, Mike, I, I think you're perfectly fine to leave those carcasses out there. Like you said, they're not going to last long anyway, whether a possum gets there, you got birds working on it. A coyotes are, they're cruising through anyway. Okay. So they might be cruising through the coyote that eats that groundhog might've been on the property or might've been two miles away from your property the day before. Okay. They're covering a lot of ground. So they're a little bit different foxes. Really. It's, it's a really, really tall order for a Fox to take a fawn. Okay. I'm not saying it can't happen. It can, but it's, that's a really tall order and unlikely. And so my, my two cents is you're perfectly fine to leave those carcasses out there and let whatever wildlife's around take advantage of them being there. The floor is yours, doctor. All right. Well, I'll just give a, a very, evidence-based answer research-based answers we know the one good thing about predators is the fact that they establish very specific home ranges and they defend them violently so um 
I wouldn't worry about new coyotes moving into an area just because you're leaving a few groundhog carcasses because whatever coyotes are using your place as a home range they will defend that now you'll get transients in during the breeding season january february early march uh you'll get kickoff uh young that have been kicked off uh but again they have to make their way and if they're strong enough to you know to actually like ward off the alpha pair in that in that area that family group uh and take over that area then they take it over there is some overlap with predator ranges but uh the fringes are um you know fought over and a lot of scent marking occurs there but i wouldn't worry about predators coming into your area almost like if you were establishing a very good food source for deer it's not really like that where they'll uh, transition in every day to feed there it's uh, a very well defined and a very well protected uh, home range and um, it does turn over over time but i wouldn't worry about them populating your area in excess all right great answer as always for me you get the barstool answer from the doctor you get the actual thought out detailed answer so we have something for everybody here uh on on the coffee and deer podcast that's a great question mike thank you it's not something i had ever thought of and uh, others may be thinking or wondering the same thing uh, incidentally i mentioned the west central branch um we're going to do if you happen to be within reasonable distance of that and you listen to the show we're going to do a habitat walk on my property on july 9th and so if you're interested in that and you're within reasonable driving distance you want to go be, uh, come see what I'm doing there. I don't know if you'll learn anything. I'm, I've made enough mistakes to show you what not to do. Uh, let me oh, know. You've done a good job. Send me an email, nick at deerassociation.com, and we'll tell you how to get there. Love, would love to see some of the coffee and deer listeners out there. All right, Mike, I'm giving the hat to Steve because uh, he's a new hunter. Uh, he had a great question. He shot his first deer, and I'd love for him to be wearing an NDA hat. So you good with that? Of course. And the only thing I would have to say for Steve is keep a close eye or make sure that uh, that cell camera on public land is well protected or well hidden. I don't want yes. uh, to leave a bad taste in your mouth early on in your hunting career. But, um, you know, it is public land and as anyone can access it. So just um, make sure it's well hidden. I usually put mine up a little bit higher, eight to 10 feet, angling them down and maybe get them out of the eyesight of the average person that might be walking in that area. All right. Good advice. All right, folks, with that, let's go ahead and get into the interview with Mark Kenyon of Meat Eater. Mark Kenyon joins the Coffee and Deer podcast today. Mark, great to have you on. Mark is the host of the Wired to Hunt podcast. Uh, he is also part of the Meat Eater team. He's done a number of other creative projects for Meat Eater as well. He's listed as a content creator, but he's sort of a Swiss Army knife of all things uh, deer and conservation at Meat Eater, which is really cool. Uh, some of the things that he's worked on that I'm sure you're aware of are the, the Back 40 series and project, which ultimately led to the donation of the Back 40 to the NDA. Uh, deer Country which Mark put on countless miles and has really got now more vast hunting experience all over the country, uh, more than anybody I know. Uh, so that was a cool project as well. Plus all the regular content he's creating uh, through the newsletter and whatnot. So a very busy guy. Uh, but one of my favorite things about Mark is he's just a real dude. 
which I've loved. I, I knew Mark before he was part of the Meat Eater team, and um, and and it's just been a, sort of a cool ride and to watch him grow and accelerate his career. And uh, like I said, though Mark's real, he shows his mistakes, he shows his successes, and I think that's why people uh, across the world love you, Mark. So uh, and he's also added a quality mustache over the years, which I have to which I have to add. <laughs> so uh, Mark, it's been a long ride. So uh, what what would you like yeah. to add to that? Well, uh, first off, thank you. Thanks for, for saying all that. And, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. And and also, you know, appreciate your role, Nick, in, you know, helping me uh, reach some of these places I have. It was great getting to work with you early on with the National Deer Alliance. Um, that actually was really, you know, formative year or two. I can't remember how long it was now, but it was a really helpful transition period for me as I had quit my day job. Um, and part of what I was doing to help, you know, chase this dream of being an outdoor communicator full time, in addition to my work with Wired Hunt, was was working with NDA early on. So, uh, hey, thank you for help with that launching pad. But yeah, I mean, what else would I add to that um, bio? I guess the only other thing would be that, you know, I've also written a book that I'm really proud of, uh, exploring public lands, the history of our public lands, how we have them, how these incredible places came to be, and you know, what we need to be thinking about moving forward to make sure we have these places to recreate and hunt and fish and, you know, just experience a little bit of wilderness. So, um, you know, that that kind of, I think, ties the bow on what I'm trying to do these days, which is, yes, create the whitetail content through Wired to Hunt and, and with media, but then also continue to, um, you know, work towards these larger causes that that I think are well, not that I think, that I know are the only reason that we get to hunt and fish and, and do this really fun stuff, which is, you know, having healthy wildlife populations and having healthy wild places, whether it's on public land or private, to support that wildlife. Um, so I'm, I'm continuing to try to um, put together projects that can fight for those resources, whether it be books or volunteer programs or just content. So so that's what I'm trying to do these days is um, keep a roof over my head, but, but ultimately do something good for hunting and fishing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the book as well, because uh, I want to ask you something about that in a second. But I also say that I said this a little bit in the intro about you sort of walking the walk. I mean, I see how hard you're working out there, the things you've done on the back 40, showing up for our volunteer days out there still, uh, which is really cool. We're going to talk about uh, working for Wildlife Tour, which is something you're working on. Uh, but this also this evolution, Mark, of like early on, I do remember the early NDA days. And I remember I was like, who's that that tall young dude over there handing out NDA hats? That's cool. Like, well, that's Mark Kenyon. And that's, I think, where I first met you. I think it was in Louisville. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, to the point now where you were you were so focused on the hunting aspect of it, which you still are. But that quest to kill that big deer and you had uh, mm -hmm. so many great encounters and stories that you shared over the years to now where is a conservationist, which I think is really, you know, a, a big, big part of who you are. That transition and then the book, I mean, was that a predictable transition for you? Is that just something that sort of happened organically? You know, it, it was kind of organic in that I came to, you know, from the moment I was born, basically, I was born into a hunting and fishing family. So I, I grew up loving these things, uh, but I never really understood how we have them or why we still have them or what we need to do to keep them around. That wasn't something I learned about uh, really not until I graduated college and I started, you know, trying to get more and more into deer hunting myself. 
And as I was doing that, then I started learning, you know, through the, what was the Quality Deer Management Association. Uh, you know, Craig Doherty uh, told me over and over, you need to read a Sand County Almanac. You need to read a Sand County Almanac. He was hammering me every time I saw him. He's like, read this book. And I finally read the book. Um, and those kinds of things changed my perspective on the natural world. And it, it just helped me understand that you can't just be a consumer of these things. We also need to be a steward of these things if we want to keep hunting and fishing and wildlife and wild places around. So starting around 2015, maybe I started realizing that I, I didn't just want to you know, run wired to hunt and hunt deer and, you know, create content about deer hunting. I wanted to do something that would help perpetuate the future. And so that led to steadily more and more work in that direction. It led to the book project. Um, and now that has only grown in me in the years since, I think, especially since having children, um, that I think is such a hard, uh, like inflection point for a lot of people in their lives. That certainly was for me where all of a sudden, like my timeline that I'm looking at isn't just 30, 40 years for me being around, but now I'm thinking even longer term, wanting to make sure that my children, you know, have a future that involves these kinds of things. So all of that, I think, has just made me uh, want to double down even more, um, doing more and more of that kind of work. And so, you know, you mentioned a couple of things that are going on right now. I'm really excited about a few new things in the hopper. Hopefully that'll be happening here in the next couple of years. Um, I would just like to, you know, on my gravestone someday, I hope that it's uh, not that I'm a big buck killer, but that I did something good for uh, for hunting and fishing in, in wild places. It'd be cool to have a side note, though, that said big buck killer, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take the, like, the little extra urn maybe on the side that says that or the, the side plaque. Um, but uh, if we had to prioritize space, that'll be yeah. number two. Yeah. You mentioned your kids. Goodness. I, as I follow along with various social media, how fast those two have grown up. It's like crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm sure they're, they're certainly keeping you hopping. So they sure are. Hello, friends. I want to take a brief break from the show to tell you about First Light and their camo for conservation program. Hunters were the original conservationists and First Light is proud to build on this legacy with their camo for conservation initiative. A portion of every sale of their Spectre Whitetail Camouflage will be passed on to the National Deer Association to help us support science-based deer management and advocate for healthy deer populations. And as the official apparel sponsor of the Field to Fork program, First Light is committed to protecting our hunting heritage by educating the next generation of hunter conservationists. In addition to the great work the company does giving back to conservation, I can personally attest to the quality of their products as I've been wearing First Light camo for several years. It is phenomenal. In addition to looking great, First Light has a layering system for any weather conditions you might encounter, helping you stay on stand longer and more comfortably. For more information, visit firstlight.com. Hey, jumping into conservation, let's get right into it, because one of the things we want to talk to you about today is the Working for Wildlife Tour. So what is, uh, just give us a snapshot, what is it all about and how did it come to be? Yeah, well, the Working for Wildlife Tour is a series of events uh, that I'm helping host, promote, and participate in this year um, that are all focused on public land volunteer work. Um, basically, 
going out and doing various projects on public land, whether it's picking up trash, building wood duck boxes, uh, building small game habitat, forest restoration, various different habitat improvement projects for deer, upland birds, turkeys, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the idea came to me this past year as I was thinking about, you know, how can we um, encourage folks to get more involved in conservation work? And one of the things I've noticed in my own life is there's lots of people that want to do something and they have a hard time figuring out what should I do? Like I get so many questions, like, what should I do? I, I read your book. Now, what do I do? I, I, I listen to this podcast. What do I do? Um, and you, know, you can send emails, you can make phone calls, you can talk to your friends and family, but a lot of that stuff feels a little bit fleeting or flighty. Like it's, it's, it's ethereal. You, you send an email, but did, did that really do anything? And I got to thinking that some of the most impactful things that I've done myself were where I felt like I had actually done something good. Like I felt it in me, like I accomplished something worthwhile today. And then I could also see the long-term benefits of that work was like the real hands-on stuff I did. Like, for example, on the back 40, you know, improving that habitat and then sharing it with other people and seeing new hunters getting to go out onto this landscape and see deer prospering and see you know, woodcock showing back up and seeing turkeys and, and helping people experiencing that. And so getting your hands dirty and doing something makes a immediate, tangible, positive impact for wildlife. And at the same time, it, I think it kind of fills you up in, an, in a way. I think, you know, making phone calls to a senator or signing a petition, it's important. But I've never once did that and then felt like, oh, wow, I'm re-energized today. I am fired up. I feel better. But going out and doing something, whether it's helping on a public land or, or even improving habitat in private land, like doing that. I think does kind of recharge you. It gives you like this feeling like, okay, I'm doing something good. This is helping critters or this is helping people. And I thought, you know what? There are a lot of great projects like that going on across the country, but I don't, I very rarely ever hear about them. They're kind of buried in newsletters or you kind of have to be tapped into a local chapter or something to kind of hear about this stuff. And I thought it might be worthwhile to try to really shine a light on these things across the country and make sure people are consistently hearing about them and reminded of them and, and reminded that this is real positive work and it's fun. And that is where the idea for the Working for Wildlife Tour came about. I thought, well, why don't I kind of pilot a project like this where we shine a spotlight on a handful of these events that I'll go to I'll help promote, try to rally folks to go out and do this stuff, be able to have a chance to get out there, do something good in different parts of the country, meet a bunch of hunters and anglers who want to give back and see if we can build a little more, more momentum uh, for people to, to get involved in these kinds of things. Because I think it's, it's good for the habitat, it's good for the critters, but just as important, it's good for the people. And so that is the Working for Wildlife Tour. We this year are doing six events. We've done two so far, four more to come. Um, We've had one in, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. We had another one in Michigan. And then we have three coming up in partnership with you guys at the National Deer Association, one in Idaho, one in Mississippi, one in Kentucky, and then one other event in Missouri. So that uh, that's the, I guess, a long version of the short story. <laughs> so you've completed uh, two up to this point. So why don't you uh, talk about how 
easy, either easy or difficult it was to get some partnership support because as you said, NDA is uh, kind of co-assisting with three, but you also have several other organizations. Um, how are, how's the industry kind of um, wrapping their arms around this and how have the first two gone so far? Yeah, so my thought coming into this was we didn't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, I knew a lot of organizations put these kinds of events on. Um, so rather than trying to really start something brand new from scratch, my initial idea was let's just re reach out to a, a few of my closest you know, conservation organization contacts and see what kinds of events they already have coming up or events that they're thinking about putting on and see where they need help. Um, and so, you know, that was the case with backcountry hunters and anglers. They had a couple of events that were already on the calendar um, that, you know, could just use some additional marketing and some additional manpower and help. Um, and so it's been great in that perspective. It was great, you know, with, with you guys at NDA. And I reached out to the team and there was like, all right, we've got some events, but maybe we can spitball on some new ideas or some different things we can do. Can we partner and help out other projects you guys have with this, uh, like your public lands initiative um, with the Forest Service? And so, yeah, the, the conservation organizations I've worked with have been great. Um, I've been appreciative of, uh, you know, Mediator supporting this and, and helping make it possible for me to be able to do my side of it. Um, as far as the first two events, they were awesome. Um, you know, the first one was in outside of Boston, like I mentioned, it was, I think, the largest um, volunteer day that BHA has had yet. And we picked up, I it was either a ton or two tons of trash on this wildlife management area. Um, the Massachusetts Wildlife Agency representatives were there and they thought it was, you know, incredible turnout, awesome work done. Um, but, but again, I think the big thing that stood out to me, and I said this earlier, but I, I really want to make clear point on this the thing that was the most surprising to me was just how much fun it was and like how everyone was just stoked to be around other people that wanted to do this stuff um i think sometimes it's easy to get kind of stuck especially these days that we're more remote than ever right we're more we're more just kind of in our own little silos uh it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there are a bunch of other people who like the same things that you like and who care about them enough to do something and when you can get around those same folks it's really, um, it's a great atmosphere to be in. So that was proved really true there in Massachusetts. And then in Michigan, partnered with uh, MUCC, that's the Michigan United Conservation Clubs. And they have got a great on the ground volunteer program. They've got these events all across the state, almost every week, it seems. And I'd heard about them over the years and, and just knew for my Michigan event, we had to do something with them. And you know that proved to be true. There was a great turnout again up in Northern Michigan pretty darn far from any, any major city centers, but we had people drive like five, six hours to come up and we were uh, creating small game brush piles. So we were going out and cutting and thinning different areas of public land and then creating brush pile habitat for rabbits and other critters. And, uh, you know, terrific. I, I think we directly worked on something like, I think it was like 30 acres of, of area that we covered there. Um, but it was, you know, a tremendous kind of tangible thing where you can see what a landscape looked like in the morning. And at the end of the day, you can see it looks very different. And, you know, there's gonna be a whole lot of happy cottontails running in and out of this brush and new wildlife openings where there's going to be new green growth. I'm sure right now that uh, there's going to be whitetails munching on coming this, uh, you know, October 1st when folks can head out there with a the bow in hand. So yeah, it was uh, really uh, just, just, uh, 
uh, heart lifting, maybe is the word I'm looking for. I just came out of like, yes, like this is, this is worthwhile. Yeah. It's when you were describing earlier, that feeling of you get a certain feeling when you do the hands-on work and get your, get your hands dirty, a different feeling than whenever you're doing more of the, like you said, pick up the phone and which is important work, the policy work. And some people actually would rather do that than get their hands dirty, which is great too. We appreciate that. But it's almost sure. like, you know, you do a home improvement project. It's not exciting to work on a plumbing project. Like the other day I had to replace a faucet. Like that's not exciting. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, repainted a camp building, you know, on my place, which you can see. And there's just like a different feeling, yeah. even though practically it didn't really do anything. It just, there's, there's something about being able to see the fruits of your labor right there and getting your hands dirty. So I totally get yeah. that. And you're working with partners we've worked with as well. We've done you know so, uh, several things with backcountry hunters and anglers and also with the MUCC, ironically. So mm -hmm. very good group. Yeah. So speaking of projects, as you mentioned, we have three that we're going to be working on together, Idaho, Mississippi, and Kentucky. And since you're in Idaho right now, and I know your fondness uh, for that place, you must be pretty excited about that project in the Idaho Panhandle uh, National Forest. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great event. Um, it's it's really exciting to get to help out with what I think is a terrific program you guys have with your with your public land initiative, helping you know partner with the Forest Service to really help manage some of these forest areas that that need that management. It's going to make it better for wildlife. I think in many cases, there's going to be things that are going to, you know, help deal with our wildfire issues that I think hit home for a lot of folks last week with uh, the smoke over there on the East Coast. So I am really excited to be going up there and partnering with, you know, some representatives from your organization at the NDA, some folks in the Forest Service are going to be there. I think our main initiative is going to be Aspen Stand Restoration. So we're going to be removing encroaching conifer trees um, and preserving some of these specific zones that uh that the forest service has has identified as being key aspen habitat and um i think that's you know, this area up there in northern idaho for folks that don't know from like the midwest or the east coast northern idaho is actually a tremendous whitetail area so this is this is a, a perfect fit i would say for the nda to be doing a project when it comes to public land in idaho because there's going to be if you if anyone wants to go to this place and chase whitetails they're going to be there and we're going to do some work that's going to help so I'm, I'm stoked to be able to get up there it's it's idaho is a surprise and maybe not surprising but it's a big place when i googled how long it's going to take me um it's going to be a hike even though i'm in idaho already so it, it surprised even me but for anyone who does come out uh, who maybe already lives in montana or washington or idaho it's a beautiful part of the state there's great camping opportunities great fishing opportunities great scouting for future deer elk hunts um it's just great right there by the Canadian border, pretty wild stuff. So yeah, I think that is July, July 29th is the event. Yep. That's right. And you guys put together a terrific landing page on your website where folks can get all the specific details for the meeting location and registering. Um, but we've got, I'm bringing a couple of my friends, knock on wood, hopefully schedules to allow a few of my folks from meat eater will be joining me. Um, hoping that Kale and Giannis will be able to make it. So it uh, should be a good crew for, for Meat Eater and, and a bunch of volunteers, hopefully from our organization and elsewhere, along with who else, whoever, anyone else who wants to join. So it's going to be, it's going to be a good time. Yeah. Speaking of registration, you want to go to deerassociation.com slash WFW, which is working for wildlife. Or if you just do a Google search working for wildlife, you'll be able to go there and register. And real quick on that, I know the doctor has a question there, but, um, 
So a lot of people quit thinking about whitetails as when they get as far east as Kansas or, or west as Kansas and Nebraska, right? But so uh, I'm familiar with the Panhandle National Forest. I've shot two bears up there. I love the country. I know your experience. And so you typically start off your hunting season out there, you and Josh, uh, and you have some wild tales always. Uh, it's some of my more anticipated shows I hear from your reports out there. Tell folks just a little bit about your experience hunting there uh, in Idaho for whitetails and some of the, just briefly, some of the things you've encountered. Yeah, well, I think anytime you come out whitetail hunting in the West, you're in for just a dramatically different kind of experience. And, and that's one of the things I love about whitetail hunting is because they are so uh, omnipresent across the country, you can choose to still go deer hunting, but have like dramatically different experiences. I mean, you could chase deer and do it in a thousand different ways in wildly different places. You can go and hunt whitetails in the desert. You can hunt whitetails in the Great Plains. You can hunt them in the big woods. You can hunt them in the swamps. You can hunt them in the mountains. And that I think is really cool. Um, and so when you head out west, you're going to get to have a, usually a quieter experience in that there's just not as many people in most of these places. You're going to have a, a lot of space to roam usually. If you're up for hunting on public land and hiking in or driving deep into some gnarly forest service place, you can get, you can have a really wild experience if that's what you're looking for. There are opportunities to do backpacking whitetail hunts. There's opportunities to do fly-in whitetail hunts. There's opportunities to do float whitetail hunts um, where you can really get away from the road and get away from people and, and find deer. Um, another thing that I think is surprising to some people is that there are, you know, in, I would say they're more pockety, like the whitetail populations will be in pockets. So they're not everywhere across every state out West, but if you find the right pockets, which are usually where there's water, there's a lot of deer. So there's some really high deer density areas. So you're up for, you know, a good time as far as seeing deer in some places, especially some of my favorite places to whitetail hunt, which is kind of on the Eastern side of the Rockies, where you can get into that kind of plains habitat on the edge of the mountains or just East of them. Uh, you have great visibility. So you can do a lot of this scouting from afar, glassing deer from afar, see what they're doing and then make a move on them, which I just love. Um, so all of that's on the table. Um, but yeah, I've, I've hunted them in the plains. I've hunted them in the river bottoms. I've hunted them in the big woods. That panhandle part of the of the of Idaho will be more of that big woods mountain hunt. Um, I haven't hunted that specific place. Most of my Idaho hunting has been more of the river bottom, although I have hunted some of the eastern um, part of the state in the national forest and seen some pretty nice deer actually. Um, but uh, I mean, we've seen bears, we've seen lots of moose, we've gotten trail camera photos of mountain lions, bears, wolves. So it just, I think, takes up, it kind of turns the volume on, on uh, excitement and new surprising things. It, it kind of takes your typical whitetail hunt and flips it on his head and anything is possible. So, uh, you know, if no one's taken that dive yet, I, I highly recommend checking it out. It's, um, we have an incredible resource out here. And if you're a deer hunter, you don't need to leave your favorite big game species if you want to go out west. It'll, it'll be right there with you. All right, Mark. So let's talk about the Working for Wildlife Project tour again. So let's get back to that. And there are people that will hear you say that, you know, we have these events coming up, show up, we'd love to have you, and they are coming 100%. But let's talk about someone that's on the fence. 
that might be worried about their skill set. So go ahead and talk a little bit about what if someone is a little bit hesitant or they're on the fence and talk about what you've seen so far in regards to no matter what your skill set is, can someone show up and make an impact? Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, great point. You do not need to have any kind of, you don't need to have any skills. I have, I have no skills and I have been able to participate <laughs> in these uh, events fully so far. Um, there's something for everyone. So our first event, all you need to do was, was get around and pick up trash. Um, the next event was using hand tools, was just picking up brush, moving brush. So if you are physically able to, you know, get out there and walk around a little bit, um, I think all of these events will be fine for you. This uh, upcoming event in Idaho is going to be all hand tool oriented. Um, so we've in the past had folks, if there was any chainsaw use or bigger equipment necessary for the project, there'll be folks there from an organization or from the Forest Service who can either um, do that themselves or help guide anyone who does want to participate in that themselves. Um, so you don't need to bring anything to the table. You don't need to bring equipment. Uh, just bring some comfortable shoes and maybe a jug of water to keep hydrated. And, um, you know, the, we will have everything you need. And uh, all you need is a good attitude. Come out with a good attitude and uh, a willingness to sweat a little bit. And um, that's that's all that's necessary. There's going to be folks with the experience that will show you exactly what to do. We're going to have experts from the NDA and from the U.S. Forest Service there who are going to guide us in, you know, exactly where we need to do this um, you know, these, these cuts, exactly how to do them, exactly where to move the brush. So we're, we're going to be in good hands and we'll probably all learn something too. So I think that's uh, going to be a, five, a fun side effect of it all as well. So speaking of fun side effects on uh, your Instagram reels, you talked about these days, but then also the social aspect afterwards, like some of them have a short social gathering. Uh, touch on that a little bit and then maybe share one story about either someone you met or something that you saw that kind of touched you and kind of gave you that little shot in the arm of, yeah, this is why I do this, or this is exactly why I wanted to start this project. Yeah. Well, so great point that I should have mentioned is that we've tried to have some kind of uh, social element to each one of these so that, you know, we're not only out there doing some work, but we're also going to kind of celebrate together. Um, because again, back to kind of my point earlier, um, I think the power of these in-person get-togethers is that we can all kind of help recharge each other and energize each other to continue to do good work and to continue to be a part of this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we're going to have, you know, various, uh, I think some of these events are cookouts. Some of them are just bringing out drinks and uh, some folks we met up at a, a restaurant afterwards. So each event's a little bit different, um, but yeah, great opportunity to meet more people. And I, you know, there's a lot of folks, especially new hunters, who will reach out and be like, man, I don't have a mentor. I don't have a crew. I don't have a deer camp. I don't have people to do this stuff with. Like, how do you meet people? How do you get connected with someone who can teach me? Uh, well, here's a perfect opportunity for that. If you show up to one of these volunteer events, you are right away going to be surrounded by dozens of other people that are excited about hunting and fishing, that are excited about giving back to it. And they're exactly the kind of people who would love to help you who would help, love to help mentor, who would love to help bring you into the fold. Um, every event I've been to so far, whether it's been these, whether it's been the volunteer days on the back 40, um, has you know, there's been great examples of every one of these where there have been newer folks who are getting tapped into the community, who are being brought into the fold, who are making new friends, meeting new folks. 
you know, there's, it, here's a great example of this. There is a, a couple guys who I helped mentor on the back 40 um, two years ago as part of your guys' the National Deer Association's Field to Fork program. And I, I was with them and helped each of them kill their first deer. In the subsequent two years, we've continued to stay in touch. I've continued to help mentor them on the back 40 and also on properties that I hunt. And we've stayed in touch. They've continued to get into hunting. They have now started volunteering back with the field support program, helping other new hunters. They came to one of the Working for Wildlife Tour events this spring and volunteered on this public land piece. They then met some new people at this Working for Wildlife Tour event, met this guy who's a relatively new hunter who hadn't kind of been brought into the fold yet, but he showed up for the event. He met these two new guys who I'd been mentoring, who've been involved in these programs. They invited him to join them to do some stuff and then brought him back to the back 40 this spring for a tree planting day on the property, helping out there, bringing it all full circle. Um, so I think it's a perfect example of the relationships that are made, the opportunities to connect with our community and, and just how much fun it is to, to get all together doing this kind of stuff. So there's been lots of examples of that kind of thing where, you know, I, I've just been really energized and excited by that and, and seeing this family of, of hunters and anglers and people that care about wildlife, seeing that family grow. Mark, while we have you, I, we need to ask this question. Uh, anything new coming up that you want to share that's going on with uh, Wired to Hunt or Meat Eater? Well, I'd say one of the things I'm really excited about is uh, kind of tied right back to what we just were talking about, the back 40. Um, I'm heading back to the back 40 again this year to uh, bring people up to speed on what's happened since we handed off the property to you guys two years ago. And it's the story I'm, I'm just so excited to tell because the, the story is a really good one. The progress that has been made, if, let me say it this way. Two and a half years ago, three years ago, when we at Meat Eater and I were brainstorming, you know, what, how do we, how do we pass this along? What do we do with this property? How do we make sure that the the mission that we had for this project in this property continues on? How do we make sure that it continues to do good things for hunting and hunters and wildlife? Um, we had this dream that man, the NDA would be the perfect partner to steward this place into the future. They could use it really positively. This could be a perfect showcase to educate people, to help new hunters, to continue managing this place for wildlife and biodiversity. Man, wouldn't that be amazing if that could all work out? Man, wouldn't that be amazing if, if new people could come through here and, and benefit from it just in the way we have? Um, wouldn't that be great? These are these hopes and dreams we had three years ago. And now, you know, three years later, two years since you guys have had it, I can look at it and say, holy smokes, it all came true and, and it has been even better than I could have imagined. There have been dozens of new hunters that have got to go onto this property, see wildlife, learn about deer sign, get to sit out in the woods with a mentor and have amazing deer hunting experiences. I can't tell you how many people, new hunters I've talked to on that property who said, man, I never would have got to see this. I never would have got to actually learn this quickly because every time I go out to this place that I did have access to, we never see any deer or this horrible habitat or there's 20 other guys, but we're able to bring these people out to a, a beautiful, pristinely managed property where you actually can see deer doing deer things. You can be out there with a mentor from the NDA who's teaching you these things along the way. So it's been, it's, I can't emphasize enough how amazing it has been to see the, 
uh, impact that that property and the volunteers and the NDA has been able to have through that, through those efforts. Uh, and then even, you know, personally, I've just gotten to meet so many great people. I, I mentioned, you know, those two gentlemen I mentioned earlier have got to develop, you know, great friendships with these two guys and, and seeing them growing as hunters now and, and now helping other people. So we're going to tell that story. Um, and showcase both the progress with the habitat itself, but then also the progress with the field and fork programs and all the new hunters that have gone through there and, and learned and killed their first deer and brought venison back to their families and have become, you know, hunters and conservationists themselves. So that's the story that we're going to showcase in a new film. And um, I'm, you know, that's, that's right up there at the very top of my list of projects coming up that I, I can't wait to get working on. We're excited about that as well, and it's very satisfying to hear you say those things. Obviously, I'm I'm aware watching it happen each day, but uh, to get your perspective, I remember uh, yeah, a couple things stand out to me on the back 40. The first one is every time I try to pull start something and it doesn't start, I think of you. So, <laughs> you know, there's that. That was one of the most memorable yes. scenes because I, everybody can relate to that, right? Um, <laughs> but I remember when you got that place and it was just so raw and all the work that you personally did there. I mean, to the point where when we hunted there in the winter and you were handing it off, we all shot deer, but it was based on that work that you put in. And I remember sitting there in that freezing cold blind <laughs> talking about <laughs> all the possibilities for that property. And so to your point, to see them come to fruition is extremely satisfying. So it's been a great partnership yeah. and we, we love it very much. Um, so there's that part of it. And so uh, the other thing is um, just thinking about Michigan now, I got, I want to ask you this. What is, what's the early scouting report? Because uh, some of my favorite stories that you tell are of the deer that are more, more so local to you that you're mm -hmm. chasing and, you know, the different names that you, that you give them and following the, some of these journeys, by the way, folks, if you haven't followed along last two, three years, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, they seem to mostly have happy endings. So uh, what's the scouting report going into this season? Yeah, well, um, knock on wood, it, it should be a great year. Um, I, I had a I had a banner year on my local properties last year and was able to uh, to kill my number one buck last year and ended up having some really cool close calls with my number two buck. And those close calls were with my son. I actually was able to take my four-year-old, he was four at the time, with me to see if we could kill this buck together. And had two close calls, actually could have taken a shot both nights when we were out after the steer, but it just wasn't perfect, perfect, perfect. And I, I didn't want anything to possibly be slightly off with him there with me and everything going on. Um, so he made it through. I was able to get pictures of him and confirm that he survived. So this buck we call the wide nine um, will definitely be the deer I'm most excited to to hopefully see here soon as velvet pictures start rolling in and, uh, and chase this year. Um, you know, my, my boys have seen him. We, I do have one of his shed antlers, which is the last shed antler that my dog found before he passed away. Um, so that's kind of a cool story that the last antler will be tied to this buck that maybe we'll be able to close the story on. It'll also, if, if it comes together, even if it doesn't come together, I think this is the longest history I've ever had with a deer. This will be the fourth year following this deer. Um, so, so that is the, the number one that we're really excited about. There's another really cool deer that my son really wanted me to shoot last year, which we call brow time. Now all the bucks that I used to have these names that I would come up with, but now my boys named them. So they're, <laughs> they're, 
I don't know, they're simplified in a certain way. So it's like brow time. They find one feature on the animal and it's just, the, it's that. So it's like brow time. There's another ball called broken beam. Um, what's the, there's one, there's, there's four deer actually that made it through that could be four years or older this year, which is by far the best I've ever had on these Michigan properties. Um, so there's, oh, a bulldozer, bulldozer, <laughs> um, which I can't remember how I ever came up with that name, but regardless, it, it's going to be an exciting year. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to getting out there after them. We're continuing to do some, some small habitat projects on those local Michigan properties, which I think have, have helped. Um, and then, you know, this isn't my long-term, you know, know a deer a long time kind of story, but we also have another really exciting thing I'm looking forward to in Michigan, which is the work we're doing on our Northern Michigan family deer camp. Um, we, it embarked on the most significant habitat project up there ever um, this past spring. We brought in some folks to help us do some really significant cutting, expanding a very, we had like a tiny eighth acre food plot that we expanded to probably about an acre now. We made four different openings and some really thick mature pine stand um, habitat, which was kind of a wildlife desert. It was zero sunlight, zero understory, nothing. Now we've got four new kind of bedding wildlife pockets where there will be sunlight, there's treetops on the ground. We added a little micro food plot in there as well. So we went from what was just big mature pine forest with nothing to now lots of diversity, lots of sunlight, lots of food. And up there in Northern Michigan where there's not a lot of that kind of thing, I think it's gonna make a big difference. So I'm very excited to, uh, to kind of play guide up there for my dad and my son. And, and actually my youngest son, we'll get to come up this year too, because we've, we've said that at three, you get to go to deer camp. So, uh, I'll be towing two of them around this year. Wow. Wow. Well, good for you. And bringing your dad up again, makes me think back to the old back 40 series. And I love those yes. shows and included him there. He's such a character. Um, yes. And so that's exciting. And I saw you, people can't see your face like we can when they're listening to this, obviously, but your face light up when you started talking about uh, the things that you're going to do on your on the on the family hunting camp and i think that's always the most special no matter where uh, yeah. it is in the country that you're hunting so looking forward to hearing more about that and all the various characters in the uh you know mark mark kenyon series of of all these deer you're chasing so uh, the doctor you get the final you get the final question today and we'll let mike uh, we'll let mark get out of here sounds good so mark earlier you we were talking and you mentioned about your journey through hunting and into conservation and you mentioned your gravestone so i'm not gonna you know put mark kenyon in the ground so i don't want any hate mail or <laughs> i don't want the internet to blow up but let's talk about uh, not so much your epitaph on your gravestone but let's take a book out of your podcasting uh how to and you would throw the question to um your guests about a billboard so instead of a billboard mm. let's talk about a bench with a cement monolith and a bronze plate with mark kenyon's statement about what he would want someone to know to help remember him with all the work that he's done in his life what would you hope to achieve and what would you like to have that read well i i think what i would like to have achieved is some kind of long lasting positive impact on wildlife and wild places and what I would hope to be remembered by. So if somebody was going to, I don't know the right wording for it, 
But if there was going to be something on there that was, was a, the message that I wanted to get across, the message that I hope I would have gotten across over those coming years would be that if we're going to take from the landscape, if we're going to take a, a fish out of the river, if we're going to take a deer out of the woods, we need to give back twice as much. Um, I think that being a hunter is not just shooting an animal. Being an angler isn't just catching a fish. It is stewarding those animals and those landscapes and, and leaving them better than we found it. So I, I hope in the years that I have in between now and then when I keel over, I can find a way to more succinctly and clearly uh, write that down so that it'll fit on the monolith. Uh, but until then, that's what I got. All right. Sounds good. So one short follow-up question to that is where would that bench in that little monolith be for you? Mm. Where would you want it to be? Wow. Can I, can I split them up and put them in two places? Sure. <laughs> so I want, I want one of them to be at my family deer camp. We call it Ken Roven up in Northern Michigan, where I learned to hunt and fish and all those things. And then I would want the second one to be outside of the Teton mountains in Wyoming, which is like my second home uh, where I've fallen in love with, with the, the other stuff in the wild, the, the wilder Western um, mountain side of my life, uh, where I proposed to my wife, where I am right now, um, those two places would kind of bookmark the two sides of me and, uh, would be great places to be remembered and, uh, and yeah, great places to visit for anyone who wanted to go see them. Fair enough. I like it. And that seems like the most appropriate place to wrap up the conversation today. So Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to see you. And looking forward to doing some great things with you here the rest of this year, all right? Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, and thank you for everything you guys do. Uh, I'm proud NDA member and have uh, been so pleased to see the progress and the continued good work you guys have done over the years. And can't wait to see what's next. It's always fun to have Mark on the show. Um, Mark Mark podcasts for a living, right? So he's good at it. He's a good uh He's a good interviewer, but he's also a very good guest, gives you good thoughtful answers, and he's just fun to talk to. Uh, knowing Mark personally, like I do, a lot of times people will ask, hey, you, you know, I see you saw this person. What are they like? Uh, Mark is as real and genuine as you're ever going to find out there. He he actually could easily contribute to the B-team report uh, every show like we do because he makes this, the same kind of mistakes, and it's, you know, it's kind of cool and fun. But anyway, uh, you know, Mark, and I also say Meat Eater is a company are really true conservationists like they we work with a lot of companies that contribute to conservation but these guys are truly above and beyond and even when they when they launch an initiative it's like what can we do for conservation and i really appreciate that and this working for wildlife tour is just another uh example of of how they do that and and uh you know their commitment to conservation so uh, what did you think mike well, I think that uh, for me, I had never met Mark before, and it was actually good to be able to interview him because I have listened to his podcast for years. I mean, I'd, I'd almost like to say that he's one of the original goats in hunter or hunting podcasting. So um, like you said, uh, he's a good interviewer, but he's also a good guest. He's a good guy in general. So I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it was good. Speaking of the Wired to Hunt podcast, it's interesting. You know, you and I, Mike, we're charged with putting out a podcast every other week. And so, as you know, sometimes it's you know, hard to line up the particular guest you want or get the timing straight. He's doing this every week. And so, 
I mean, it's impressive how he's able to keep that show fresh and going and been doing it for a long time. So, uh, you know, for those that just more or less listen to podcasts, there's a lot more work and time intensive uh, things involved than what you realize. Oh, for sure. And also the fact that we uh, we have the luxury of having the support of the NDA organization behind us. He was he was doing that all on his own. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the early days of Wired to Hunt. So anyway, thanks, Mark. Appreciate you being on. And uh, yeah, working for Wildlife Tour. We're proud to be part of that. And I uh, hope folks will follow along where if you live near one of those areas, we'll be working. There's still an opportunity to register on the NDA website. Just type in working for wildlife in the search box and you can actually sign up there and come out and see us. So that'd be great. Hey, Mike, it's time for the B-Team report. Looking at what we did last time, it looks like it's my turn to go first. So... Oh, this is one that you and I just talked about. And so I, I had a couple. I actually had a couple I could have went with. Uh, I'll slip a bonus one in real quick. Unfortunately, the other day I had to go to a, a funeral viewing. And I mean, that's obviously not a laughing matter, right? You're going to pay your respects uh, to a, a elderly woman who I knew pretty much my whole life had, had passed away. Um, and so the funeral home was within walking distance of the house. But uh, we've been in this pattern where it's like scattered showers constantly. Like you couldn't get an hour anywhere where it didn't rain at least a little bit and it's hot and muggy, but this is within walking distance. Right. And so I'm not looking at the weather, even though I've seen the weather for the past week. And there I go. I just throw on my, my suit jacket and everything. Oh, I'm going to walk down to the funeral home. Well, inevitably, of course it's hot. It's like in the eighties, it's raining. And by the time I get to the funeral home, I had to stand outside for like 10 minutes so that I could <laughs> quit sweating and cool down which is just, that was just stupidity, but that's not the B team report. That's just the day in the life of, of Nick Penizzotti right there. Uh, the B team report is I've been trying to get to, to shoot my bow a good bit. And this is a new bow for me, the Matthews phase four. It's a wonderful bow. I mean, I, I, I'm loving shooting it, but I haven't shot nearly enough. And here I look at the calendar and we're getting into July. And so I decided to go out uh, the other day and get some time in shooting and I'm shooting and I'm shooting. Things are looking really good. And then all of a sudden, like I'm hitting low. I'm like, why am I hitting low? And then I shoot, I adjust my sight. Okay, that's good, I'm back. And then another arrow or two, I'm low again. And I adjust my sight again, and then, I'm, uh, and then I'm back, and then I'm low again. And so I'm like, what in the world is going on? Because now I'm looking at my sight, and I can see where my mark is and where I've moved my sight to. I'm like, well, this is ridiculous because I should be shooting over the target where I have this thing set. And so I'm looking at my cables and I'm like, what did I already do to this bow? Is there something wrong with the limb? And just before I go to shoot again, I realize that my D loop is all the way up almost to like my kisser button. <laughs> so what was happening was Mike's shaking his head here because, you know, this is this is typical me, right? What's happening is uh, I have one of those. It's not a D loop that's made out of cord. It's it's actually one of the, a D loop that attaches with the little micro screws and squeezes onto the string. And I've liked those because they're easy to adjust and whatnot. Uh, and and because they typically never slide on me. Well, the problem was whenever I had set that bow up, I never really cinched those screws down on the on the uh, ring 
And so eventually it worked loose and started sliding up the string. And so I don't know how many shots I shot and adjusted my sight a bunch of times <laughs> before I figured it out. But uh, there you have it. That's my B team report for this week. All right. Well, mine's uh, simple. And it, and again, I apologize to everybody, but it goes back to chainsaw work, but that's all I've been doing recently is what it seems like. So um, running the new chainsaw, uh, ran it great for the first day, ran it great for the second day. And on the third day, I cut down a really, a really oversized ash tree that had been killed by the emerald ash borer. And when I when I fell the tree, I felt it exactly where I wanted it to be, where it wanted to go, because with dead trees, I don't fiddle with them too much. I just let them go the way they want, and I just clean them up. Uh, but what this tree did and what it had is it had three separate main branches off of the trunk about 25 feet up. And when I fell the, the tree, I, uh, it actually landed between two other trees perfectly. But what I didn't realize is that those three main branches or main uh, jet offs from the trunk had literally wedged it in between those two trees and it was uh, holding there rather firmly so I'm I'm working along and I what it did is is nicely it held the actual trunk off the ground right at chest high so I could just not even bend and just buck them up just as quickly as I could go but um, when I had to go in there and start dealing with the limbs I wound up getting the the tip of my chainsaw pinched uh, which is my new saw the big one i cut a cut a notch and just like you're felling a tree like some of the big uh limbs i'll actually wedge them and notch them notch them and um back cut them and for some reason it wasn't working and i kept you know i notched it kept easing into that back cut easing into the back cut watching that gap it wasn't closing down on me and so i thought well i'm gonna come down underneath and clean up that knot just a little bit better and I only had literally about two inches of tree left but nothing was moving and it was just there was so much pressure on that tree which I didn't realize on that limb and so I got up in there as soon as that saw got in there it shifted down about five inches and pinched that bar Mm. and it was in there good and all I had was my limbing saw which was like a little Husqvarna like 240 you know 14 inch and so literally I had to work from the top of the tree the whole way down to finally get the pressure off that like it took me like an hour and a half of cleaning up all three of those limbs very carefully because I had that was the last saw that I had and not granted I took the took the actual power head off and left the bar and the chain in the tree but you know to kind of you know I've been cutting for a long time and, and to actually have that happen you kind of feel like a dummy but it's again when you have something new happen I guess it's I, I kind of write it off as well it's a learning experience I never had a tree wedge like that at the crown between two other trees and it created a lot of pressure and with trees it's always about like tension and compression on each part of the wood and I just misjudged where the compression really was coming from and that's my BT simple but that's all I had. Well yeah I mean I've learned very uh I've learned right when I first started cutting trees to take two saws with you because uh you know or or you could take an extra bar I guess if you get your bar stuck, but uh, yeah, it happens. Even if you've been cutting trees for a long time, inevitably um, something like that is going to happen to you. So yeah, B team report. There you have it, folks. Once again, we did not disappoint. Hey, I mentioned in the last show that we're getting close to trail camera season. I do have my first cameras out, Mike, starting to get pictures of some uh, pretty promising looking bucks already, although it's not always easy to tell in early July. Um, but hey, I set up that, uh, I got myself a Cuddy Back Cuddy Link system. 
And so I uh, have a half of my property that has no cell service at all. And it's a long way to get down in there to check a camera. And so uh, that's why I went with that system because the upper part of the property has great service. And I was able to uh, immediately reap the rewards of that. And I'm able to get pictures from that low, lower area. And so, so far it's working really well. I know you've had this system for a long time. And so now I've got uh, my Moultries, which I certainly still love and they do a great job. And now the Cuddy Link system is able to uh, combine with that and give me sort of full coverage out there. So uh, thanks for putting me onto that. Uh, frankly, I've watched you use yours for the last couple of years and uh, I thought, man, that's pretty slick. Yeah, it's, it's a good thought, thought process. And um, whether you're using them with a cellular camera to send everything out or just a, the regular base home camera, which is what I'm going to do for the summer, I'm actually going to just walk in and just have my base unit and collect one card off of all my cameras uh, until it gets closer to the season. And I actually want more, you know, day to day information or intel. So I, I enjoy them and I've had great luck with them. So I'm glad, uh, glad you like them. Yeah, I think they're perfect for the the kind of property that I have. Like I said, where the cell service is at one point, it, it's just not existent. And shout out to Pollinier, by the way, with Cuddy Beck, who we've had on the show before. He really walked me through the process. And I just said, hey, sketch out the system you think I need. And uh, he did that. And so thanks, Paul. You've been a, been a huge help. And I'm sure I'll bother you with more questions over time. So, hey, a couple uh, NDA announcements, actually one main announcement. Uh, we have a we now have a free cost free membership option where you actually or you would be an NDA member. OK, and so here's how it works. If you already subscribe to our newsletter and you have your physical address put in the system, so you've entered that, then you're already considered a member. OK, that's the requirement. You have to be. You have to, we have to have your email address and we have to have your physical address. And the reason we have to have your physical address, it's not because we want to mail you things. Okay. We don't, we're getting to the point where we don't mail almost anything. It's because we want to know where you're located. So when we have a policy issue, something comes up, we need you to contact a legislator or whatnot. We can find you and send you an e-blast and um, you can respond to it. That's the main reason. And so yeah, you can become a basic member of NDA for free just by providing your email address and also your physical address. And in that category, we're giving away a bunch of stuff. We're going to do it on the regular. You don't have to even do anything to enter. And so, for example, right now, the first giveaway we're doing for our free basic member is the HHA Optimizer Bow Site. I have an HHA site on my bow. I've had... Uh, multiple generations of HHA sites over the year. They've been a great NDA partner. We really uh, love working with those guys there and we're giving one away. So all you have to do is just be in our member list. doesn't cost you a thing and you have a chance to win prizes and you got some other benefits just by being a basic NDA member. So um, if you're someone that's sitting there and you're like, well, I never, never really got around to sending the, the 35 bucks in for a membership. Well, this is for you. gives you a chance to sort of test out membership in the NDA won't cost you anything. We don't ask for a credit card. We just want to know your email address and where you live. And so we've launched this. We've had a release about it and people are piling in, taking advantage, and we hope you will as well. So I don't know, Mike, free is always good, right? It, I mean, I've heard so many people say if it's free, it's for me. And so I think it's <laughs> a great way to to dip your toe in the water just to see what it's about and see if you want to you know, participate more at a different level. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're excited to roll it out. I don't know of anyone else that's rolled this out like we have. So we're trying to be on the cutting edge of membership. But I'll tell you, I'm going to tease something here. Keep your eyes open because we have more exciting membership opportunities coming. Okay, it's not just stopping with free. Uh, we have some other options that are really cool that I think you're going to be interested in. So look for that to come out very, very soon. All right, Mike, it's been a good show. It's been a long show. What's the final word from you today? Final word is um, everyone, you know, the season's, uh, you know, quickly upon us and it might not be in the forefront of your mind, but I would just say, start to say, start thinking about the hunting season and, you know, get out there and do a little something outside with your, with yourself, with your friends or with your family. Make that a goal over the next couple weeks. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Hey folks, as always, we thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, appreciate your emails as well to ask NDA anything will be in a couple episodes, but send your questions in uh, as soon as you think of them. That's always the best time I think to send them. So you don't forget, send those at Nick at deerassociation.com. Thanks for all your support folks. Look forward to bringing you another show in a couple weeks. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. Mm-hmm.